0: to done and done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Investigators, I couldn't even sit on this for a whole nother week to drop it to you. Martin Turnbull, prolific author of Hollywood's Garden of Allah series dropped by our done and done studio last week for a far reaching conversation about old Hollywood with us. Spiderwebs galore. We talk about the Garden of Allah and the Hollywood Canteen and the expansion of Los Angeles through time and all the players and all the people. I hope that you will enjoy this conversation as much as I loved having it with Martin. Old Hollywood, so many spider webs, so little time. Let's investigate. Martin Turnbull, I can't believe you are here. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you, Alicia. It's great to be part of the Dun & done family of spiderwebs.
0: So many spiderwebs. I was lucky enough to run into your Garden of Olive stories years ago, so when we covered that episode, naturally. Your description was just fantastic, and I love your work about it. So we opened with that quote. And you were kind enough to reach out and kind enough to accept my pitch to say, hey, do you want to come on and talk about old Hollywood and the Garden of Allah with our investigators?
1: I was especially impressed with how you covered the Garden of Allah, because that hotel is the stuff of legends. And Hollywood being Hollywood, some of the legends are true, some of the legends are absolutely not true. Some of them are uh, intentionally manufactured by studio PR departments or biographers. And so there's, there's a lot of misinformation and, and, and skewed information, but it was a very special time during a very special place. And I thought you captured the atmosphere of that hotel really well. And I, I just wanted to let you know what a great job I thought you did.
0: That is a high compliment. Coming from you and very kind. Thank you.
1: Let me ask you, Martin, what
0: got you into old Hollywood? You've written so much about it. I know you are continuing a series right now about it. What was the first thing that got you kind of
1: interested in it? You know, I think of myself as being one of those people for whom the whole, the whole old Hollywood era was just part of my DNA. I just was born thirsting for it. I, I grew up in Australia, uh, my childhood was the 1970s, and during that time, there was a guy on TV who would present the midday movie every day, uh, Monday to Friday, and I would watch him during my school vacation, and every every day he would introduce a movie, and he knew more about the stars and the directors and the studios and the moguls and the history than Anybody I ever knew. And I just, I just found myself really fascinated by the stories, behind-the-scenes stories, that he would tell about the people who were in the movie we were about to watch, or what was going on, either in Hollywood or in the stars' lives. And I was just always impressed with this fund of information. And I found myself looking at the credits. Like, I would actually read the credits of these movies before the movies actually started. And I noticed the same names were popping up, like the same makeup people, the same costumer people, the same hair people, lighting people, cameramen, directors. And I, I grew an appreciation of that these these movies just didn't make themselves. These movies were put together by people who were operating at the, the top of their game, so that if Joan Crawford needed to lift her eyebrow just so in Mildred Pierce. There was a whole team of people making sure that the light hit her face in exactly the right way, that her eye makeup was exactly right so that when she lifted that withering dramatic eyebrow, it would, it would, she would do it with maximum effect. And so I just became fascinated with these, with these people who were making these movies. And then in 1970, well, I don't know now, mid-70s, Lauren Bacall released her autobiography. And she made a, a book tour of Australia. Now, for me, I was probably 15 years old at the time. and I've been watching these movies for probably three or four years, which is when you're 15 is a long time. And I, I thought, wait, what? This, the, the Lauren Bacall that I've been watching in these movies, she's actually, A, still alive, and B, she's going to be here in Australia. Amazing. When you grew up in Australia, Hollywood is 8,000 miles away and old Hollywood is 8,000 light years away. It is a, it is a whole world away. And this, 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 that woman, the woman on my TV, she's, she's going to be in the city that I live in? What, wait, wait what? And that was just a revelation to me. And she, her appearance in Melbourne was during the day. And I was at school, so I couldn't go. But I ran out. Well, no, I didn't run out. I saved my money because it was only available in hard book at that point, saved my money and bought her biography Could by myself. And I ate it up. It was, it was, because she had a, an amazing start. Like she was cast in her first movie, opposite one of the biggest stars in Hollywood with whom she fell in love and married and had children. And it was, it was, it was, her life was kind of like a movie itself. And so then I realized, oh wait, so these people, They've written books about it. They've written memoirs. They've written biographies. There's, there's biographies on these people. And, and then I was just off to the races. I just couldn't get enough of it. So I've been reading about these people most of my life, never thinking for a moment that I, I would actually end up living here. And so when I was casting around for a, a book to write, because I've always wanted to write a novel, it just seemed the obvious thing to set my work in this, era, this time and this place and these people that I've been reading about for for so long. And so that's what happened.
0: It's my feeling. This is why we're bosom friends, because I have been reading about these stories for as long as I can remember, too.
1: It's all interconnected.
0: Spiderwebs, so much to be grateful for. One thing I want to pick up that I find, I just made a note about this. Uh One thing I think that is fascinating is you mentioned the dynamics of how many folks it takes to put together a production. Mm-hmm. We mentioned Sidney Gilleroff in this uh, week's episode. We'll be talking about Edith Head. We'll be talking yeah. about Cecil Beaton. There's so many background characters that when you do watch the credits, like you and I do, you see over and over. The one thing about the Garden of Olive that to me is fascinating, it's not just housing the hot stars, the producers, the directors, it's a community for the entire film network.
1: Yeah, in a way, it's really a, a microcosm of Hollywood at large because right from the get go, and I mean literally from day one that the hotel opened in January of 1927, it attracted, um, creative types. And there's a whole reason for that we can get into if you want to, but it, 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 it didn't attract the accountants. No, it attracted the people like Ginger Rogers, who came to Hollywood with her mother in tow in the hopes that she might have a chance in the movies. And she checked into the Garden of Valor because it was a welcoming place where people stayed for weeks and months. The villas had their own kitchen, so they could, they could live and, and eat fairly cheaply. But they were also surrounded by other ambitious actors and articulate people who are screenwriters and going to be directors or are directors. And so it was a very a very creative community kind of feeling at this hotel, which isn't normal. Most hotels, you check in, you go to your room, you sleep, you, you check out, and you go on your way. Well, this was more like a... Almost like a college campus, it was where people would stay for months on end. Like like Scott Fitzgerald, for instance, he got a contract at MGM in 1937 uh, for ten weeks, and he checked into the Garden of Allah because that was the kind of place you did. It also helped that half the Algonquin Round Table were also probably staying there at the time, namely especially uh, Dorothy Parker and Robert Benchley, who we knew from the Algonquin Round Table, and so people would stay there because like-minded people who are also talented, they were also articulate, they were also ambitious, they were also social animals. These were the sorts of people who were staying at this hotel and they were just a a door knock away and a martini away from spending a a wonderful evening together. That's what attracted me to telling the story of this hotel was, that it just wasn't like anywhere else at all, And, and particularly because it didn't have a house detective. Most nice hotels of this era had a house detective to make sure that Mr. and Mrs. Smith, who were checking in as Mr. and Mrs. Smith, really were married and to each other before mm-hmm. they were allowed to get a hotel room. Gardner no such person existed. Nobody cared. You're free to do what and whoever you like. And so there was a very flowing, free and easy atmosphere at the hotel for the whole time that it was open.
0: It really is a remarkable to your point, microcosm of creativity. So again, we have all kinds of people floating in and out of the Garden of Allah. One of the nearest and dearest to our hearts around Dunn and Dunn is Humphrey Bogart. He's Uh, the one who brought Dominic Dunn out to Los Angeles for a version of the Petrified Forest back in 57. But Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall your initial love of old Hollywood had a Mm -hmm. legendary time at the Garden of Allah.
1: Yes. When, when came out to do the original um, Petrified Forest, he stayed at the Garden of Allah. I would imagine somebody in New York recommended it to him. So he stayed at the Garden of Allah as he was establishing his Hollywood career. For him it was the second stab at a Hollywood career and this one took. And so for him, it was his kind of home away from home Later on, when he and his third wife, Mayo Methode, were on the skids, they had a lot of fights and a lot of sort of st- you know, stamping their feet and leaving out in the huff. And when the end finally came, well, one of the ends finally came, uh-huh. he, stomped down, he stomped down Sunset Boulevard to the Garden of Allah. Their, their home wasn't actually too far from the Garden of Valor. So when he finally left, not no, quite so finally, but nearly finally left, he went back to the Garden of Allah because that's, that was kind of home to him. And so yada, 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 that, that marriage ends. He meets Bacall. They get going. And they, uh, he's finally free to marry her. They had a couple of weeks before they were booked to go back to Ohio for their wedding. So they moved into the Garden of Allah again uh, in preparation for their wedding. So it was two weeks before their wedding. They stayed at the Garden of Allah. So they went away to Ohio. They got married they came back and they came back to the Garden of Valor where they stayed until they bought their first house, which I think was up on King's Road up, uh, up above the Sunset Strip. So for someone like Bogey, it was a, a home away from home and it was a retreat where he could go when times were tough. And I think a lot of people felt that way. It was a retreat to go because nobody was judging you. No, if, if you just wanted to lock your door and drink yourself stupid for a week, Fine, you just go ahead and do that. If you've got a mistress you want to take and have a good time, fine, you do that. You do, you do you, and and there's a party out here around the pool when you're ready to join us. And, and there was no judgment you know, morality-wise because, of course, these people were toiling under the production code, which didn't allow them to to be too obvious when it came to sex and, and extramarital sex and, and love and all this kind of stuff. But the Garden of Allah was the opposite of that. And anything goes, everything goes, nobody cares, everybody's doing the same. And so that was kind of freeing, especially if you're, say, Errol Flynn and David Niven, who also stayed there. If you're becoming a well-known face and everywhere you go, people are starting to turn and want a piece of you, the Garden of Allah is not like that. Because, you know, you're also Frank Sinatra and you're Harpo Marx and you're Orson Welles. Nobody wants a piece of you there because... They're also people who people want a piece of. So you can go to the Garden of Allah. Valley, you can be yourself because honestly, nobody cares and nobody's going to judge you because they've kind of been there, done that themselves. So for, for Bogey especially, that was a, a wonderful sanctuary.
0: Do you have any dish about Frank
1: Sinatra's
0: time at the Garden of Allah?
1: Okay. So Frank Sinatra had become King of the Bobby Soxers and had conquered the music industry and as so often happens, Hollywood came calling. And so he moved out to Hollywood. Initially, he played in a couple of movies for RKO until MGM decided they wanted to offer him a contract. So for that first break of time in Hollywood, he moved into the Garden of Allah. Now, as it happens, he moved in above the, uh, above the villa where Alan Azimova was living. Now, Alan Azimova was the woman who owned the Garden of Valor originally. She fell on tough times and had to sell her her ownership in the hotel, she went on tour, because she was a a very dramatic actress, she went on tour around America, and she ended up back at the Garden of Valor. Well, he happened to get the adjoining villa, and he was a very meticulous uh, rehearser of songs. He rehearsed songs over and over and over until he got the exact phrasing, the exact tone that he wanted. So if you're Alan Azimova and you're living above Frank Sinatra and you're hearing the same song over <laughs> and over and over until you're like, dude, stop it. Move on to another song, please, for the love of God. So he appreciated that, that who he was and, and, and what he was about to do. But the reality was that he sang that song literally all day long until she couldn't stand it any longer. But he was... At, when he was there, he was at the the beginning of his Hollywood career, which is kind of a, a a recurring theme for the Garden of Valor. A lot of the people who stayed there stayed there because they heard about the Garden of Allah and all the all the advantages that it offered. So they moved in as they were trying to establish themselves. It was central geographically. It was convenient to a lot of the the nightclubs on the Sunset Strip and the Hollywood studios, and they could they could. Fence for themselves quite easily at this hotel while they established themselves. And some people took a little lot longer than others did, but it was the sort of place you could go to and go, okay, here's my home base, and I've, I've got everything I need. Now I can go out and conquer Hollywood, which is what a lot of them ended up doing, of course.
0: The Garden of Allah is not the only thing that you have written about. You have a wonderful book about Irving Thalberg. I guess my question is is there a favorite time period? In the garden of Allah for you, or do you love each one and find new projects from that? I know you're
1: writing something a little bit different now. Each era has its own uh, appeal to me. I'm really a 1930s guy. I kind of like the aesthetic of, of decor and clothes of the of the 1930s. Now, of course, I'm talking 1930s Hollywood, so the height of depression didn't really impact Hollywood as it did pretty much everywhere else. I mean, it did, but there was still a lot of money being made in Hollywood movies. But just the whole aesthetic of how it looked and the the sort of the screwball comedy aspect of filmmaking. And for me, leading up to 1939, which we now regard as Hollywood's greatest year, I don't know that they necessarily recognised it as that at the time, but 1939 gave us a whole bunch of the most classic of all the classic Hollywood. So, if anything, I would be uh, I would be drawn toward the late thirties, early forties, when when the Hollywood Dream Factory, quote unquote, was operating at its peak. Part of the reason why Irving Thalberg's story I found so attractive was because he was one of those people that pretty much invented the studio system, but while maintaining a very high degree of integrity and authenticity in recognising that the story is the key. Casting it is a factor and making sure you've got the right lighting and cinematographer and costumer. But story is key. And he took a lot of time and energy in selecting the right stories for the right personalities to be shown at the right time. And he didn't single-handedly invent the studio system, but he, he raised it, well, he almost did, to be honest with you, he almost did, but he raised it to the next level, and then the next level again, then the next level again, uh, so that by the time Hollywood reached 1939, its peak year, it was due not in small part to Irving Thalberg's efforts. The irony being that he was operating at the top level. He was, for those who don't know, he was MGM's head of production, from the, the merger in 1924 until his death in 1936, he, he was really the engine behind MGM becoming the greatest movie studio of its era. But he wasn't one of those ass talking, starlet bedding, cigar chomping, whiskey swilling moguls that the others were. He was the opposite of that. He was quiet, he was shy, he was pale, he wasn't terribly healthy he was very intellectual very well educated mostly self-educated and so he was he was the opposite of everybody else in in hollywood and yet he was the best of the bunch and i thought well that makes an interesting contrast the the most successful of the bunch was the one who was completely different from the bunch plus he had a, a bit of a dicey heart he didn't have the strongest of health and he knew that he probably wouldn't see old age so I think he figured, I need to get this stuff done now before my time is up. And so he worked very hard, harder than somebody should have worked with a, with a, a weak heart like him. In the end, that's not what did him in, but he achieved an awful lot of verse and cinema greats with a ticking clock uh, held over his head. And so that, that contrast intrigued me. And so I wrote a novel about him called The Heart of the Lion. Heart because he had a weak heart and lion because of Leo the Lion of MGM. I wanted to tell his story because it's not like anybody else's story in the history of Hollywood. And Hollywood, as you and I both know, has a lot of stories and that his is not like anybody else's. So I set out to write that story and I was very pleased with how it turned out.
0: It is a fascinating tale, Thalberg is incredible, famously married to Norma Shearer. For uh-huh. our listeners, F. Scott Fitzgerald's last novel is based upon Irving Thalberg. A lot of connections. Uh-huh. I want to back mm-hmm. up, though, because this is why you and I are friends, Martin. <laughs> I would agree that 1939 is the benchmark year in Hollywood. When I hear other people say this, I get a little tingly. Would you like to give me your reasons why?
1: Well, so 1927 is when the jazz singer introduced the talkies into the movies. And by 1927, the the Hollywood maestros of film, lighting, script, costuming, had had a few years to sort of really... Hit their mark, and they had silent. The, the height of the silent movies were just real visual masterpieces. Now we add sound, now we have talking. And once Hollywood realized, oh, talkies aren't just a fad, this is a thing, everybody had to raise their game, as they did with the introduction of Technicolor. So, with sound and Technicolor, we have to have everybody operating at the top of their game. And so, by 1939, Hollywood's had a few years to. to get it all right. And so by 39, we had the cinematographers knew what they were doing. The scenery designers, set designers knew what they were doing as with the costumers and the script writers and the directors and everybody had enough movies and enough experience, enough years under their belt to really reach the peak of their form, which let us not forget, they didn't, Hollywood didn't invent filmmaking. I mean, really the French did, but they took that technology And they refined it and refined it and refined it and refined it until they everybody was operating at the top of their game at the peak of their powers and i think by i think 1939 was the accumulation of those let's call it 15 years of everybody inventing key lighting and microphone placement and rapid fire dialogue and beautiful gowns that didn't clash with the decor which in black and white movies wasn't such a thing, but along comes Technicolor and you can have every color under the sun when you've got to sort of make a statement with that and it can't clash. And so by 39, all of that experience um, had accumulated to the point where all these people in, in every studio, they were operating at the top of their game. And so out popped all these amazing movies.
0: Holy cats. It is worth just giving a shout out to the movies of 1939, Gone with the Wind. Wizard of Oz, Wuthering Heights, a Little Princess, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Holy cats, Betty Davis, Dark Victory. I do want to ask you about this. I know that you have moved into a different set of writing and you have played a little bit with the Hollywood canteen and Betty Davis, famously the uh-huh. chairman of it all. What a legend, uh-huh. Betty
1: Davis. Yeah, yeah. How she found the energy to emote all day long on, you know, 12 to 14 hour sets. And, you know, Betty Davis wasn't doing lighthearted comedies. She was doing Dark Victory and she was doing Now Voyager and all those, those very heavy dramatic, the old maid, all those very heavy dramatic movies. So she'd go from there and then she would go to the Hollywood canteen where she would run the canteen for hours on her feet, greeting soldiers and servicemen. It's like where that woman found the energy seven days a week is beyond me. But, but thankfully she did, because in the Hollywood canteen, she created a space that would give these, these men who were heading out into war a, a very special night that they would remember for the rest of their lives. So hats off to Betty Davis.
0: In the Hollywood canteen, how long did it operate? I know there were some set rules in place about dancing and no alcohol too.
1: Yes, that, that's right. So what, the way it happened was that, John Garfield actually had had this idea of creating a Hollywood version of the stage door canteen, which is in New York. And he saw all these soldiers, Marines, sailors coming into L.A. en route to the Pacific theater of war. And he said, you know, we we could do the same and we should do the same. And Betty Davis went, you know what? You're absolutely right. We absolutely should. So they organized a fundraiser for a movie called The Talk of the Town. This okay, so this is now August nineteen forty two. And there was a premiere for Talk of the Town. And then after that there was a premiere celebration slash fundraiser at Ciro's on the Sunset Strip. And that night raised sixty five hundred dollars to fund the canteen. They found a place on Coenga Boulevard, which was a deserted barn. And Betty Davis went to everybody she could possibly think of and cajoled them slash guilted them into <laughs> donating, donating money, donating services, donating tradesmen to fix up a place and open it as the Hollywood Canteen. So the big night was October 3 1942. They opened the, the Hollywood Canteen to a lot of press. There were bleachers for people to watch the opening. The irony is the people on the bleachers were the famous people. The people going through the front door were the servicemen who were about to head out out to war. So she established a lot of rules about the canteen to ensure that everybody had a good time. And one of the most important rules that she established was that the canteen was not to be segregated. She maintained that if the black servicemen were valuable enough to send off to war, they were valuable enough to the canteen to enjoy the canteen, Without any any rules, so she integrated the canteen, Hollywood Canteen, and it was the first time, as, I, as far as I know, the first time that a, a nightclub or any venue of that type was fully integrated. So I she, had no she, idea. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? It all started with Betty Davis insisting this at the Hollywood Canteen. So That's she, incredible. She, isn't it? So and that was just one rule that she had. So the other the other rules what she had was you're right, no alcohol, because she didn't want I, this is just my theory, she didn't want drunken servicemen, who were probably nervous about heading out into the Pacific, she didn't want them disrupting the night and getting sort of into drunken balls, You know, men being men, um, drunken men being drunken men. So it was, it was no alcohol, but they made up for it by getting the cream of Hollywood entertainment to get up on the stage and entertain them. And every person you could possibly think of entertained at the at the canteen, everybody from Bob Hope and Carmen Miranda and Bing Crosby and all the way down the all, all the way down the list. Yep, 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 yep. And if they weren't entertaining, they were asking servicemen to dance. So you'd have Rita Hayward and you'd have Marlena Dietrich asking Joe from Missouri for a dance. And it was just amazing for these people. It amazes me that, that they could have a dance with Rita Hayward on the dance floor with Duke Ellington playing up on the stage. Now, that's a memory that that guy can take with him in, as he heads into Guadalcanal or he heads into Iwo Jima. So it was, it was a, a very festive, fun atmosphere that encouraged men to have a terrific night, forget their worries, forget what's coming, or if they've come back from war, to forget their experiences and have just the most wonderful night of their lives. And she did that for three and a half years, every night for three and a half years. Yeah,
0: yeah. Really is incredible.
1: Do you think the Garden of Allah
0: changes after the war with the Red Scare coming in, McCarthyism? Like what kind of shifts does Garden of Allah Hollywood go through at that point after the war is concluded?
1: Right, so during the war, Uh, accommodation was very difficult to find because of course all these people were flowing into Los Angeles because this is where the war factories were and the war factories needed thousands of people working 24-7. So during the war the Garden of Valor was a jumping joint but after the war and and, and the factory workers were no longer needed and everybody went home, everybody thought life would go back to normal. Well of course we've all been through a horrible global war. Nothing is normal anymore. There is no new way of going back. A lot of people settled in LA because if you're from some snowbound state like South Dakota and you come here and it's January and it's 75 degrees, you think, why would I want to go back to that when I can, I can enjoy life here? Exactly. So LA became, had a post-war boom and in that post-war boom, a lot of housing developments sprung up, especially in the San Fernando Valley, which had been uh, orchards, a lot, of, a lot of apple orchards, orange orchards, lemons. A lot of that became developed. So as a town, Los Angeles slash Hollywood became a lot more settled, a lot less transient. Before the war, there was a lot of people passing through, trying their hand at Hollywood. Some made it, some didn't. Some made it enough to, to eke out a living, There's a lot of coming and going. There's a lot of I'll try making movies. Oh, I didn't make it in the movies. Oh, I'll go home again. But LA after the war was a different place. There's a lot more development. There's a lot more jobs that aren't specifically Hollywood because there's the automotive industry, the oil industry, the the aviation industry, as well as the film industry. So there was a lot more settling down. So the Garden of Allah, as a, as a residential hotel wasn't needed quite so much because people came here and bought houses here because a lot of houses were being built and they were affordable and that style of hotel wasn't needed quite so much. So it was a settling down period for Los Angeles, but it marked the beginning of the end for, for the Garden of Allah, especially as the 40s became the 50s. And the movies lost their grip as being the premier entertainment source for Americans. Of course, a lot of Americans still went to a lot of movies, but along comes television. And television changed things. So it uh, and, and started to spread out because the, the, the development of the San Fernando Valley meant that studios, there's a lot more land out there. So studios like Warner Brothers, Disney, Universal had a lot more space they could grow their studio lots. So there was a there was a, a shift in the way people lived in Los Angeles pre-war versus post war. And so as the 50s, the Garden of Allah started to it went through a series of a rapid series of management changes. And each a couple every two or three years a new management team would take it over and they cared a little bit less. And so it started to become a bit more run down, a bit more neglected. So it wasn't quite the heyday that it was in the 30s, as indeed Hollywood was no longer in its heyday as it was in the 1930s. The Hollywood of the 50s were contending with the encroach of television. So they went widescreen, they went through, through quadraphonic sound and they started filming overseas. And so it was just a different town uh, working in a different way. And so, so the Valley was Valley was, was pretty much the same way.
0: What do you think Martin replaced the Garden of Allah?
1: I would say the closest thing came was the was yeah, the, the Chateau Marmont, which is ironic because it was across the street. Exactly. The, <laughs> yeah. The the Chateau Marmont was built a couple of years after the Garden of Allah opened. I'm pretty sure I'm right when I say the Chateau Marmont opened the month that the stock market fell and so it was a great time to open a hotel so they changed to an apartment building and then eventually changed back to a hotel but it was built to last a lot better than the garden of valor was so it it survived uh the expansion and the encroach of la a lot better than the garden of valor did and it attracted a similar sort of crowd it, the, the the kind of difference let me put it this way. If you were a big time director, big time producer, big money man in the movies, and you wanted to have a fling with your secretary, you took it to the Chateau Marmont. If you're a middle management guy, a middle management front office guy, or a, an up and coming director, and you wanted to have an affair with your mistress, you would take it to the Garden of Valor. So they were, they were kind of like sister hotels in a way. One was on the north side of the Sunset Strip, which is the Chateau. The Garden of Valor was on the south side. But they attracted a similar sort of quote unquote racy crowd. So, any, if anything comes close, it would actually be the hotel that was closest to the Garden of Valor, which would be the Chateau Marmont.
0: I've got a whole follow up planned on that. That was the Chateau Marmont, is always where Dominic Dunn stayed upon his oh, returns right. to Hollywood within the 1990s and beyond.
1: That doesn't surprise me at all.
0: This has been amazing. I have nineteen different things written down.
1: <clears throat> <laughs> it's a great big ball of string that never unwinds to the end. It's 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 there's every name, every every era, every story, every place has a ton of a ton of stories, and, and, and they're all very interconnected. Because what I, th- I think what people don't realize is that now Los Angeles is a city of ten million people. I think people think that it was always a huge, sprawling megalopolis. Well, it wasn't. In the era that I write about, which is largely the 30s and 40s, LA was a, it wasn't a one industry town, but it was almost a one industry town. And people worked together. They played together. They saw each other at the, at the Academy Awards ceremonies, at Ciro's at Macambo, at places like the Garden of Valor and the Chateau Marmont they would swap studios if one contract ran out they would move to another studio. So it was this constant hubbub of everybody working with, playing with, sometimes sleeping with, sometimes marrying and divorcing with, everybody else. And everybody's lives were a lot more interconnected because LA slash Hollywood was a much smaller and more intimately connected town than it is now. It's 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 remarkable how much these lives each other
0: in every season of done and done the two words that continue to come up no matter what area we're looking at but most especially here community and colony
1: right yes yes and 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 i I would describe the garden of Allah as as both of those actually
0: martin anytime you want to come back you are welcome (laughs) here at done and done I've got Betty Davis, check, Ciros, check, Chateau Marmont. We're about to get into some of your very favorites. It never ends. Well, they, they, it's all so good. They, 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 they,
1: well, that's why I can, I can write for the rest of my life on this era because it, 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 it doesn't ever end. It there's, there's no shortage of things to write about and people to write about and people, who were operating at the top of their game, at the height of their powers. And these people were very, they were also very articulate. They were ambitious. They were talented. They were very sociable. And they, these, these people weren't sitting at home knitting booties every night. These people wanted to make their mark on the world. And I find those sorts of people to be the most interesting to write about because, of course, there's always a dark side to that. There's always a downside to being... Betty Davis to be being you know, the, the, the highest paid actress in, in America or to being the highest paid studio executive or being the, the, the fish out of water, even though there's, there's a lot in common, there's contrast. And there's, there's always something to write about these people, even though this, well, the hotel was open for 32 years, which is what I consider to be the, the golden era, which is 27. The, the introduction of talkies with the jazz signal, of course, Through to 59 which is the the blockbuster of the remake of Ben-Hur. I consider those to be the the years of the golden years of Hollywood. That's 32 years, which isn't a lot in the greater scheme of things, but so much happened during those 32 years that there is no shortage of things to talk and write about, is there? Never.
0: (laughs) And sometimes (laughs) I start the story I'm starting and it ends up as a whole different story, which you get as a writer
1: too. (laughs) I can relate. I can totally relate.
0: So tell my investigators, Martin, how to find your work, your books.
1: The easiest place would be my website, which is martinturnbull.com. And on that, I have information about my books, information about various well-known places around, around Hollywood. And also they might be interested in every day, I post a vintage photo of LA, of Hollywood, Southern California. And I've done that for every day for nearly 10 years now. So people might like to find those and you can subscribe to that photo blog as well as uh, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and all the usual, all the usual haunts.
0: And we'll add all those links and show notes to investigators. Holy cats. I just have added about another nine things for us to follow (laughs) up on and talk about. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A thousand thank yous. For coming yeah, on I'm Done very, very and Done today. Well. This has been a delight. Me
1: too. Thank you so much.
0: Investigators, check out Martin's work. Highly recommended until we meet again. Stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at dunanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at done and done podcast for further information about our episodes or sources. You can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.